All right, good morning. It's good to be here this morning. It's a, it's a privilege and honor for me to come and open God's Word and share with you this morning. Uh, Ryan, thank you for the invite as well as the introduction. I'll provide a, maybe a few other additional comments about um, ourselves. I, I actually uh, have been ordained in the Baptist denomination and served about a decade ago, served in a, in a church as an associate pastor in the Baptist church. But our experience in the PCA has been um, enriching and life-giving. When my wife and I first got married, we moved to the New England area, and we attended a PCA church, Christ the King in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And our marriage got off to a rocky start. Um, And we were actually in counseling, and we had a great uh, support kind of group of friends at the seminary. But more than those things, as helpful as they were, it was the clarity of the gospel that we heard in this, in this PCA church in Cambridge. Uh, not just through the sermons and the teaching, but through the, through the liturgy, through the, the, text, the, the text of the hymns that we sang, the fellowship that we engaged in. Um, over the course of that, those three years, that had this healing effect on our, on our marriage. And so I'm excited as, as on this journey towards PCA ordination because I, I do believe um, that the gospel has this power to change and to heal. A couple of years ago, I encountered this story that I just found remarkable. They, they actually turned it into a movie. And, uh, but, but I first heard about the story from a 60 Minutes interview. And it's the story of a, of a man named Saru, an Indian man. He lived in India with his mother and his older brother. He, they were a poor family, just sort of scraping out an existence. And what the boys would do is go down to the train station to collect coal that they would then sell in town for, to make some money. Saru wasn't allowed to go. He was only five years old at the time, and this is the late 1980s. And he's begging his brother, Gudu, to take him down to the train station. It's the middle, and they're going at the middle of the night. Finally, his older brother lets him go. They march down this pretty decent long journey towards the train station. And Saru, when he arrives, he, he's tired and he falls asleep on a train bench in the train station. And when he wakes up, he can't find his older brother. And so he, he walks aboard the closest train looking for his older brother. It's a passenger train. And he falls asleep on the train. And when he wakes up, he wakes up to a nightmare. The train is hauling across Asia. And it's, it's a passenger train, but it's completely empty. There's no one to be found on this train. One day passes, and the train's still flying across Asia. Another day passes. After two full days, he gets off the train, and he's in a whole other world. He, he finds himself in Calcutta, this major city. They speak a different language. And now he's, he's left to the streets. He's dodging child predators. He's completely reliant on the generosity of others for food. And eventually winds up in an orphanage where he's then adopted by a loving Australian family. And they move him to Australia and he, he lives a pretty normal uh, life. Privilege. He, he ends up going to college. Actually, he ends up majoring in hotel management 
So the boy who is dependent upon the hospitality of others wants to be hospitable to others. But even though he's been showered with love by this adoptive family, he still has this deep yearning to find his mother. And it's when he's at a party that he has this Indian food that, he, that floods him with memories of his childhood. And he, has this, he just can't help it. And he, to, 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 find his, his mother's, uh, to find his mother. And he learns about this new technology, it's like mid-2000s. He learns about this new technology called Google Earth. Basically a satellite imagery of the whole world. And so he begins this tedious, uh, month-long search, several months, where he's searching. He, he figures out how, long, how fast a train travels in the 1980s, a passenger train. He looks at all the train stations in Calcutta, and he works his way back. Trying to find, and remember, he's only five years old when he left his home, so he's got little bits and pieces to work with. But what he remembers is that there was a, he remembers the walk to the train station. He remembers the water tower near the train station. So those are his kind of landmarks that he's working with. And finally, he finds what he believes to be his hometown. And he, he journeys to this place. And sure enough, he recognizes all of the streets and the alleys and the, the housing and he finally finds his mother, and they embrace. She immediately recognizes him, tears pouring down her face. And she says, I always knew that you would return. It's a remarkable story. I mean, on so many levels, to, to see the, the pain that this little five-year-old boy would experience in this completely unknown place, to lose his mother, the love that he was shown by this adoptive family is, is, is inspiring and encouraging. But it's also insightful to see this longing that he can't quite shake to be reunited with his, with his mother, with his biological mother. I think this story is so moving, and it hits us at a, such a deep level, because in a sense, it's our story. Like Saru, we're adrift. We have etched in our hearts distant memories of a better way. We know that things are not the way they're supposed to be. And we have this sense that we're, we're aliens in a foreign land. And it haunts us. Sociologists and, and philosophers uh, call it existential homelessness or anomie. This sense that we are lost like Saru. That we need to find a way back home. And it's it's not really ever articulated, this sense. It just sort of lingers in our souls. Maybe you've, maybe you've desired a house, and you thought, man, if we could just get a four-bedroom house, three-and-a-half baths, one-acre lot, we could finally find rest for our souls. And then you move into the house, and you realize it doesn't scratch the itch that you had. Or maybe you have this longing to move to a different city or, or a different town. Or maybe return back to the town that you grew up in. Maybe, maybe still waters that town. Return to your old college stomping grounds. And then you get here, and, and it may be nice, but it doesn't quite satisfy your hopes for that place. C.S. Lewis gives us another clue. He says that, you know, when, when children, uh, when babies are born, they cry. They have this desire, this longing for food. And sure enough, food is available to them. When little ducklings enter this world, they have this desire for water, and there's water to fulfill that desire. And he, he says, we, we as humans have these longings 
these desires that never quite find fulfillment in this world. And so his conclusion, he says, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. In this sense of homelessness that we have, it may be more acute today than it's ever been. A psychologist named Jean Twenge, she's written, she, she spent her career looking at uh, the lives of teenagers. And in the last six to eight years, she's noticed a dramatic change in teenagers. Uh, she says that uh, since 2012, this kind of cohort of teenagers that she's looking at, teens have been safer, they're less likely to have sex, they're less likely to kill one another. Violent teen violence has gone down. Those are, those, those are good things. But on the, other, on the other hand, teenagers are also more anxious than they've ever been. They're more depressed. And they're more likely to, to take their own lives. And so for her, the question is, generational change is usually pretty gradual. But this is like a major change. So what's to account for the change? And one of the things she notes is that in 2012, for the first time ever, more than 50% of the U.S. population had a smartphone. She wonders if this doesn't play a role in this sense of homelessness that teenagers have, and really the general populace. I mean, think, think about these uh, telephones that we have. We, we have with, at our fingertips more intelligence than JFK had at the height of his presidency, we don't ever have to be lost thanks to our GPSs. And yet, we, we feel more lost than ever. One, another clue into this is that uh, since 1999, suicide rates have climbed 25 to 30%. That's remarkable. And why, why, are, why are so many taking their lives? Because they don't feel at home here. They're looking for some kind of escape. The biblical story accounts for this homelessness that we feel. The first 11 chapters of Genesis tell the story of a great loss. God creates a world, a garden, a home, and he places humans in it to care for it and to extend the creative action of God outward into the world, to fill, to subdue, to have dominion, to steward creation. And not only did, did, humans, did we humans have this wonderful calling, but there was also flourishing throughout creation. All things were in right relationship to God, and consequently they were in right relationship to one another. For pre-fall, Adam and Eve, everywhere they looked, they saw flourishing. And when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, they listened to the serpent. They disobeyed the Lord. All of that flourishing began to unravel. Relationships soured. Work toughened. Creation begins to fight back against the worker. And worst of all, we are alienated from God. And yet God provides a clue, a hint, in the midst of this curse, in Genesis 3.15, a hint that he is going to make right, and bring about judgment upon the serpent. There's this clue that someone coming out of the offspring of Eve is going to crush the head of the serpent. 
In the first few chapters of Genesis, this question of who will be this seed occupies those chapters. Will it be Cain, Lamech, even Noah? All, all of these characters that enter the story quickly disappoint. Now, Noah it, finds favor before the Lord. God brings about the, the, the flood of judgment upon the earth to wipe out the unrighteous and the wicked and saves Noah's family. And maybe there's hope there for a renewed humanity. Noah and his family. And yet quickly we learn even after that that Noah uh, is not, that, that we're still without, without hope. Noah finds himself, he's sloppy drunk in his tent. There's some sort of foul play that takes place between uh, one of his sons, and we realize that the problem of sin has not been solved through this uh, flood. And the disappointment that these early chapters of Genesis contain build towards Babel, an attempt to build a home and usher in a utopia via human ingenuity and technology, right? They're taking these, this new way of building towers. These ziggurats start popping up all over the ancient Near East at this time. A new way of building stronger buildings. And they're going to take that and they're going to overcome the sense of alienation and rise to the heavens. God scatters the people, disrupts their speech, and really forces them into their original call, which was not to come together, but to spread out and multiply. A forced dispersion. And so far, things in those early chapters of Genesis are pretty disappointing. God gives this promise of a deliverer, but all of the characters to emerge so far are so bent on themselves. And then Genesis 12 shines like the first rays of dawn, Upon the darkness of, of chapters 3 through 11. This passage, Genesis chapter 12, is so important for God's plan. In fact, you could think of Genesis chapters 1 through 11 as the problem. And Genesis chapter 12 all the way through Revelation as the solution to the problem. And in Genesis chapter 12, we begin to see what it is that God plans to do with our alienation from him. From one another and from our home. This profound sense of homelessness that shakes us at our core will be resolved. God gives us a clue into the mystery of the universe, and that is that he is going to provide a way back home, that we're not hopeless. We, we see the beginnings of this plan of restoration, of a, of a cosmic reunion. So, with that introduction, let's look at Genesis chapter 11, we're going to back up a little bit from chapter 12, beginning in verse 27 and reading through verse 3 of chapter 12. Genesis 11, verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife, Milcah. The daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, Abram his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, 
his son Abram's wife, and they went together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Genesis chapter 12, filled with hope, overwhelming, especially in light of these these last few chapters of Genesis. Now given all the hope, though, there are some concerns. There's a few cracks in this. First of all, Abram is a pagan. He's a moon worshiper. In fact, every indication is that he's actually a pretty devout moon worshiper. He's, he, he's coming from Ur and Haran, both hubs for the worship of the moon. Sarai, his wife, is named after the moon god's wife. His sister-in-law, Milcah, her name is, is given after the moon god's daughter. And Terah, Abram's father, his, his name comes from the Hebrew meaning moon. So every indication is that this family is not just a moon-worshipping family, but they're a devout, exemplary moon-worshipping family. But not only that, we read in verse 30 of chapter 11 that Sarai is barren, that she has no child. In the ancient world, one's children were everything. They were your 401k plan. They were your home, uh, home security system. They were your workforce. And they were the means by which you were to live on after you died. And when we read that Sarai is barren, it's hard to overestimate just how hopeless that line is. Especially when the blessings of God are to come through descendants. So God is, just on the surface, God has made a horrible pick for these plans. You know, the circumstances leading up to this moment are pretty dire. And now this great plan of God seems a little far-fetched, given the person that he's just selected. And you got to wonder, does our hope really lie here? Let's take a closer look. God speaks to Abram, and he says to him, go, go. That's a... That's a disruptive imperative, right? It'd be much easier to just sort of stay. That sounds more comfortable. In fact, that's, that's kind of what we do on our own. We stay. That's what the people at Babel did. They said, let's stay here, let's come together, and let's build a fortress here. Just as Adam and Eve huddled in the trees under the fig leaves, all of humanity with Babel was huddling under this tower for their protection a more sophisticated version of fig leaves. And this effort to bring everybody together is, as I said earlier, it's a refusal to uh, heed God's original command to fill the earth and subdue it, to spread and multiply. And so now God is telling Abram, go do what I originally called you to do. Leave. Go from here. 
It's frightening and it's exciting all at the same time. And then with each additional command, imperative, it gets even more difficult. He says, go from your country. Right? That's difficult. If you've ever been overseas to a different country, you've got a different language, new food, new habits, new patterns. Um, it's, it can be difficult. Then getting closer to home, God says, go from your kindred, your family. And then he hits home. Go from your father's house. Each of these commands to go are like arrows wounding Abram with greater intensity. Leave your home, your people, your family, everything you know. And, are you ready? You know, big, big sacrifice, big payoff, right? Here's what God says. Go to the land that I will show you. <laughs> that I will show you. And he's Abraham's like, what? I don't even know. I'm supposed to leave all of this familiarity, and I don't even know where I'm going? To the land that I will show you. This is such a risk for Abram, for Abraham. Such a risk. And this is what it means to walk by faith. Is God asking you to do something similar this morning? Asking you to to take some kind of step, to move in some sort of direction without providing a clear um, indication of what that might mean. That's what it means to walk by faith. And notice that God isn't buttering Abram up by saying, Abraham, have I got a plan for you? Uh, You are going to be a blessing. You are going to be blessed. Many descendants are going to come from you. In fact, half of the world's population in 2018 will call you father. Half the population comes from one of the Abrahamic faiths, right? Christianity, Judaism, Islam. They'll write songs about you. That's not what, that's not what God says. He, he, he's not the slick salesman who kind of has to conceal the fine print so that he can hook Abraham on this wild ride. No, he leads with a challenge. And doesn't Jesus do something similar? Go, sell everything that you have, and come follow me. He cuts, and then he heals. And I think this is instructive for how we speak about Christ. Are you reluctant? to share the cost of discipleship for fear that it might uh, turn someone from the faith? Are you afraid to share the pain and the difficulty that's bound up in the Christian life? A lot of times we want to keep this nice sheen on the gospel in order to keep it persuasive. When we think of coming to faith, it's always moving in a, in a better direction, right? I was addicted to drugs, and I, I came to faith in Christ, and instantaneously, I no longer have those addictions that I used to have, or my marriage and my my family life was a wreck. I came to Christ, and now everything's perfect. My children obey me at, at all of my, you know, every beck and call. Everything's just perfect. Now, just to be clear, coming to faith, coming to Christ means healing, and things will improve, but often it takes place over the course of a very long time, indwelling sin, can wreak havoc as we are sanctified towards Christ, or towards Christ-likeness. So let's not think of the gospel as this fragile little message that we have to sweeten so that we can, in hopes that our neighbor will accept it and God's feelings won't get hurt that they've rejected him. But instead realize that the gospel crackles with power, with the power of God. And God, in giving 
Abram, this gospel, right, this good news of, of the plans that God has for Abram, he doesn't hide the difficulty that these plans entail. And it's easy to kind of gloss over this command to go without giving much thought to what it meant for Abram and his family. This would have been extremely difficult. And you know, the Hebrew is very economic with its words, and so you don't get a whole lot of insight into what was actually kind of taking place. But Sarai has to leave all of her friends and family that she's known And I'm sure there's lingering bitterness, not knowing where they're going to be going. His teenage niece may have left her boyfriend in Haran, and she's sort of glowering at Abram the whole way. Why did you make me leave my my friends and boyfriend? The children within the household are asking Abram, are we there yet? Are we there yet? And Abram's thinking, I I don't even know where there is. Um, There's no U-Haul. There's no roads that they can take. In fact, it's, it's, it's likely that they will be attacked by bandits on their way or encounter hostile tribes in the land of Canaan. There's all sorts of challenges inherent in this call that God gives. It's a bold call, and it's a faithful step that Abram takes in following the call. But, but nonetheless, God does lay out lavish promises towards Abram. He promises land. He says you'll get a place, a home. Adam and Eve were ousted from their garden home. And now God promises a new home, a new place. And he also promises a great nation. And this is the most unlikely of all the promises that Abraham has given. And it gives us the greatest insight into what's actually going on here. I've already alluded to it, but the big question The elephant in Abram's tent is, how in the world will a great people come from Abram's line? How can this old barren couple father a great nation? This is the tension in the story, in the whole story. And so now we come back to the concerns that I raised earlier. What do we make of the glaring inadequacies of Abram? God here is demonstrating his power and faithfulness to his promises by using this unlikely couple. These promises are going to hinge upon supernatural power. The same creator God who made everything ex nihilo, right, out of nothing, is going to take uh, the barrenness and emptiness of Sarai's womb and bring forth a people. This is such good news. God's promises are not based on human faithfulness to God, but upon God's faithfulness to his promises and to a people. And so, really, there's great comfort in the inadequacy of Abram. These promises must depend upon God, which brings us to a uniquely Christian idea, a uniquely Christian view of salvation. Christianity proclaims salvation from above. I've already alluded to the contrast between Babel and this call here because it, the, the, the Moses writing this is wanting to draw some parallels here. The Babel story, which immediately precedes ours here, represents a salvation approach from below. 
It's the salvation model that every other religion follows. It's an effort to reach a heavenly home, a heavenly place from the ground up. That the people of Babel are dealing with all the feelings of alienation and insecurities that we have post-fall. And they're doing it apart from God. They're relying upon their own ingenuity, their own grit in building this tour. I'm sorry, tower. Babel is a metaphor for all other religions. Marching our way up towards the heavenlies, up towards the divine, through our own effort and energy. And in our text this morning, God is saying, I will give you these things. It will be through a gracious gift, not tireless effort and energy. In fact, I'll even take the guy that nobody else would have selected for the job just to demonstrate that these promises rise and fall upon my power, my grace, and my faithfulness to them. That is such good news for us. Now, as part of these promises, God also mentions blessing, just sort of a generic blessing full of good things. In fact, uh, I've heard that in these three verses, here in chapter 12, these first three verses, the word blessing shows up more in these three verses than it does in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Right? God is up to something very big here. And God also promises Abram a great name, which is I, precisely the thing that the people at Babel were after was a great name. And now God is saying, I will give you these things, Abram. Greatness and a great name. They're not bad, but they must be derived from me, not from, below, from above, not from below. And all of these promises of God begin with this uncomfortable call to go. Abraham must leave his house, his home, to find, to find a home. What would it mean for you this morning to go, to leave? Is God calling you to go? And it may not actually mean moving, although certainly it could. Maybe you've made a, a pattern of sin a type of home. You dwell in this sin. Your mind, your heart, your soul find rest in this sin. You've become cozy to it. And you don't want to leave it. You don't know where confessing this sin might take you. Like Abraham, you must go. You must leave that sin. Maybe your marriage has grown stale. And you dwell there because to change means disruption and a host of unknowns. Right? This damaging lack of communication between you and your spouse has become a type of home. It's like a silent pact that you keep, that you have made with your spouse. And God is calling you this morning to, to leave that, to go. Maybe you're aloof with your children. You find comfort maintaining a safe sort of distance from, from, from your family, from your, from your children. Because it keeps you insulated from the frustrations and challenges that inevitably come from a deep and abiding presence with your children. And this aloofness has become a type of sanctuary for you, a type of home. God is calling you to leave. Or maybe you've sort of constructed this false view of yourself, and you just kind of dwell there. You live there. 
Um, and God is, 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 is calling you to leave that, to come to him, and to learn what he has to say about you. Now, the, the bigger question, though, is how do we gain the resources to actually leave these things? How do we go? Do we dig deep within ourselves, sort of drum up the energy and muster the strength to leave? That's the Babel approach. Um, I don't believe that's what God is calling us to. Let's actually think back to Saru for a moment. Thanks to Google Earth, he found his home, and he was reunited with his mother. Now, as Babel teaches us, we can't build a tower. We can't use Google Heaven, right, to make our way up to God. He has to come down to us. He must, he must come and rescue us. And that's exactly what he did, right? Christ left his heavenly home, his perfect fellowship, right, his heavenly kin, the Trinity, to come and to rescue us. And not only did he leave his perfect heavenly home, but he became homeless, right? He said, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. By leaving his home and marching toward Calvary, he acquired a home for us. In becoming homeless, he gives us a home, a place. In fact, he's preparing it for us as I speak. This is the resolution to this deep homelessness and dislocation that we feel. And the, res- the, the resolution, it doesn't rest on us, but it rests on him. He has come to us. We can't get to him. And only when we rest in that, when we realize that we have no power to find a home and rest in Christ's work, can we find the home that we seek? Because this call of Abram in Genesis chapter 12 blossoms into the call of Christ who says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. By resting, by residing in Christ, we are simultaneously sent out. Just as the Father sent Christ into the world, so Christ sends his disciples into the world. We're not home yet, right? Again, Christ is building that place for us. We're not home, home yet. In the meantime, we're sent as pilgrims, just as Abram was sent. It's a difficult call, but as we dwell and rest in Christ, God gives us all the resources we need to leave our false residences behind and to rest in him. Amen.